Good to be with you all. Jerusalem, of all cities, has seen its fair share of important guests. The city has the evidence to prove it, too. Take Jaffa Gate, for example. Almost anyone who visits the old city of Jerusalem will pass through Jaffa Gate at least once. The old city is walled with beautiful white limestone walls. In fact, they were built by the Ottomans to be more like a decorative crown than a practical line of defense. They have lots of, lots of gates, maybe seven or eight, I should have counted. Um, all of them are relatively narrow, but beautifully carved. But when we talk about Jaffa Gate, we usually mean a massive gap in the wall. It's wide enough that vehicles and crowds pass easily in and out. But it wasn't always this way. In the early 20th century, the Ottomans and the Germans were buddy buzzy, buddies, and the Ottomans invited the German Kaiser Wilhelm to visit. They weren't going to make the Kaiser get down from his horse just to go through a gate. Instead, they pulled down the wall so that way the Kaiser could go through with his whole entourage. So for an important guest, the beautiful high walls of Jerusalem were pulled low. Or we could consider the Pope's Road. Before 1964, there was a, a poor dirt road, just a path that climbed up the valley to the old city of Jerusalem, hugging the side of Mount Zion. There was nothing particularly lovely or special about the road, but plans were made for Pope Paul VI to travel up this road to Mount Zion. So they weren't going to have him you know, climb up some dusty path. Instead, they built it up and they paved it. Now it's a well-maintained road that carries vehicle traffic in and out of the city. So a lowly road was built up to make way for this honored guest. We all know what it's like to expect the arrival of a guest, right? It takes preparation. We might not pull down walls or pave our roads, but uh, we might clean the house or fix up things, prepare food, plan a day, right? Generally, the more important the guest, the greater the preparations we have to make. And Advent is essentially our work as the church, preparing ourselves for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself true God. It's a very important guest indeed. What could be more important than being prepared for his arrival among us? Our texts are about this, about preparing for his coming. In Mark 1, John the Baptist calls us to prepare for the Lord's coming through baptism and through repentance. And so that'll be, that'll be the main point of our sermon today. Mark 1's important in another way, though, and I want to talk about that, too, because it's the introduction to the gospel. In fact, it's the introduction to the gospel we're going to be reading all year. You know, we're starting a new lectionary cycle, so we'll focus on Mark. We'll read from John and Luke and Matthew as well, but Mark will be the focus this year. So it's a privilege to preach on the introduction to Mark, because beginnings are really important. They set the tone. They draw us in as an audience. They might even give us important information to know for the rest of the story. Consider some of these first lines from famous books, and maybe you'll know some of them. All children except one grow up. That's Peter Pan. Call me Ishmael. That's Moby Dick. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. It's Pride and Prejudice. Mother died today. That's Camus, the stranger. Or there was a boy called Eustace Clarence, there was, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> That's Lewis in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. 
Not only are these engaging lines, they're giving us key information that, that, that show us how to interpret the story that's to follow. And the gospel writers were good writers too, even Mark. And their introductions are like keys that unlock the significance of their message. So how does Mark begin? He writes, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So what can we say about this beginning? Well, first, it's gospel. It's good news, which is what gospel means. It's an announcement, a proclamation. Second, it's news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark kind of gives us, he shows his cards right away. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's telling us Jesus is the Messiah that's spoken of in the Hebrew scriptures. And then Mark tells us that uh, this beginning sends us to Isaiah, that it starts in Isaiah. Mark is saying he's not the first one to announce Jesus is coming, and neither was John the Baptist. According to Mark, the beginning of the good news of Jesus is found in Isaiah 40, which Cheryl read for us today. And then he quotes that passage. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So this is Mark's introductory key to understanding his story, Isaiah 40. Let's spend a little bit of time considering that message before we return to Mark. In short, Isaiah 40 is a call to prepare for the coming of God because he's coming to be with his people. That's the big takeaway. This passage, Isaiah 40, was written for the people of God following their judgment by God and their exile in Babylon. So these are, these are people who are receiving this message who were familiar with suffering and steeped in sin. And their suffering was all the worse because they were sinful. So this was suffering that they deserved in a way. But Isaiah, his message is gospel. It's good news for these people. Because God does not hold his anger against his people forever. When his people repent, then he forgives. So Isaiah begins, comfort, comfort my people. He says, her sin has been paid for. He's forgiven their former sins. The second part of Isaiah's good news, so the first is forgiveness. The second is that God's coming to be with his people. And he goes into detail there in verses 9 through 11. He talks about someone who, a messenger, needs to bring good news to Zion, needs to lift up his voice with a shout and say, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with his mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. <laughs> I'm just thinking about <laughs> what it's like to have young and what it means to be led gently. Uh, isn't that a beautiful message, a beautiful prophecy, though, that God is going to tend to his people like a shepherd? gathering lambs in his arms, carrying them, carrying us close to his heart. It's, it's tender language like, like Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It also reminds us of Ezekiel 34, which Father Jay preached on two weeks ago, right? In that passage, God talks about how the, the current leaders of Israel, the priests and political leaders were failing, they were hurting the people. And so God claims that he himself will come to judge the people. He, he himself will feed them and bind up their wounds and care for them. He will shepherd them. So Isaiah is not unique in saying God is going to come. This is a hope that God's people had. 
And uh, in many ways, it's like yearning for the exodus, you know, looking for God to come and to lead them, to teach them how to live righteously, to give them food miraculously. And so that's, that's, a, that's a little hope that Israel had. So we see at the beginning of this passage was the good news of forgiveness. And then at the end, he talks more about God coming to be with them. And in the middle, Isaiah calls us to prepare. He calls his people to prepare. He says, a voice call of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain shall be made low. The rough ground shall become a level. The rugged place is a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. So this is a passage about preparation, and this is the passage that Mark quotes specifically. If God is coming to be with his people, right, then we had better prepare. The more important the guests, the greater the preparations, right? We have to do more here even than pull down a, a wall or pave a road. Isaiah is saying that we need to make a straight highway to pull down hills and to build up valleys. And in Illinois, making straight highways is not so hard. Uh, they're, they're all over the place. But in east of Jerusalem in the desert that we're referring to here, all the land is limestone, it's rock. And the, and the valleys are deep crevices and the hills are tall and towering. And so this is, this is something not even modern Israel has done. They don't have straight highways in the desert, okay? Uh, let alone ancient Israel. But Isaiah's being clever here, okay? He's not really thinking about a physical road at all. We could say, we could translate that, that passage, every mountain and hill will be humbled, every valley will be exalted. You see, Isaiah's hinting not at a physical road, but at us, his people, preparing for God's coming. Those of God's people who are low like a valley, who are oppressed or poor or downtrodden, these are the people that are to be raised up, they're to be built up. Those who are proud and hold high positions, these are the people who need to be humbled and brought low before the coming of God. Because when the earth is left in the hands of fallen human beings, some people are pushed to the bottom and marginalized. Others accumulate prestige and wealth and power. And inevitably, some injustice creeps in. God's kingdom will level these injustice, injustices, building up the poor in spirit and bringing low those who accumulate power. So the hint here, Redeemer, is that the people of God would do well to repent of injustice and sin before God arrives. It's better for God to find us at work doing this than for him to have to do all the leveling himself when he comes. So we can summarize Isaiah 40, right? Isaiah is announcing good news. This is good news. It's the beginning of a gospel. God's people are to take comfort for he's coming and forgiving their sins. In light of God's coming, God's people need to prepare. So how does Mark use Isaiah's message? Well, after quoting Isaiah, Mark says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist is none other than the voice crying out in the wilderness, the desert of Judea. He is the announcer of good news. And he says, After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. So if John is the one who's announcing and preaching, who should we expect, right? We should expect none other than the Lord God himself. We're not expecting some wise man or an enlightened philosopher. 
We're not searching for someone to enhance our inner consciousness. Our expectations aren't limited to a political liberator. God, Mark has set us up to expect God himself. So John's statement is fitting, right? Someone more powerful than even he is. Mark has us readers of the gospel held in grace, suspense, and expectation because we are waiting for God to show up. And that's what we're supposed to do, I think, for the rest of this lectionary cycle as we read through Mark is look for God at work. Will we see him forgiving sins as only God can do? Will we see him taking, will we see him taking control of nature, calming storms and seas? Will we see him providing food miraculously or maybe humbling the proud and lifting up the lowly? Will we see him appear in his glory as he did on Sinai? This introduction is not unimportant or incidental. It's a key, right, to understanding Mark. And it's a key to understanding who Jesus is. It's a clear declaration that Jesus Christ is divine, that he's God. So let's keep this in mind as we, the lectionary takes us through Mark this year. So then what does John call us to, right? If God is coming, how do we prepare? And John's message is for us because we too are awaiting God's return. Jesus came and now we wait for him to come again. Well, preparing is really what waiting in Advent looks like. And John is calling us to baptism and repentance. You see, this is just the start. There's a lot of things we need to do to lift up the lowly and humble the proud. But this is the beginning of the lectionary year, and this is the start of the Gospel of Mark. So John's not teaching us how to build the whole highway. He's just giving us the first steps. That is baptism and repentance. Baptism, we'll start there, is the introduction to the Christian life. Do you ever think about how leveling baptism is? It's a one-size-fits-all entrance into the people of God, right? The text says that the whole Judean countryside was coming to John to be baptized. So we should imagine Pharisees and tax collectors, soldiers and zealots, merchants and widows. When it comes to baptism, there's no first class or economy. There's no young or old or this race or that nationality. There's just people before God in baptism. And because of that, I think it's both humiliating and exalting. It does both. You know, if, you, if you've been baptized, you pass through the same waters as Pope Francis and Joel Weber, Thomas Cramner and Aidan McCarthy, Mother Teresa and Dana Harris. So depending on how you look at it, it's supremely humbling or supremely exalting. And I think for some of us who are thinking about baptism, especially if you haven't been, it can, it can feel that way. If you've been following Jesus and you've been going to church, you might think, aren't I a Christian? Do I need to be baptized to be saved? Do I have to admit to people I haven't been baptized yet? It can feel humbling to, to need to do that. Okay, um, But there's only one starting line for the Christian race. and It matters not whether you're one or 100. This is the door that God invites you through to the banquet of the Lord. On the other hand, you might wonder if you're really ready. Are you pure enough? Do you live a good enough life? Do you know enough theology? Or does your kid know enough theology? But this is a first step. This is an introduction, not your entire journey. And so, um, you know, we're being invited to embrace the honor and the exaltation of baptism. You let the water of baptism lift you up and carry you forward. So in short, John calls us to be baptized. But he also calls us to repentance. 
And so whereas baptism both lifts us up and humbles us, repentance just humbles us. You know, nothing cuts down our, our mountains of pride and hills of self-righteousness like repentance. And why is repentance so humbling? I mean, it's relatively obvious, but just to say it, it forces us to consider what we did wrong, to consider our sin. We've got to admit that we're responsible for wrongdoing, both in what we've done and what we've left undone. We have to recognize that our individual sins join with other sins and form structural sin in communities and nations and the world. There's no area in our lives, in my life, Redeemer, for you to look where you won't find sin. And that's painful to admit. So repentance is for all of us. For those of you who are beginning, who are now maybe thinking, I should be baptized. <laughs> you don't have to wait to be baptized. You can repent. You, know, you can start now. Confess to God and he'll forgive you. And for those of you who have been following Jesus many years, repent. It's for you too. Because unfortunately, repentance is for everyone, even not just beginners, because sin is not just for beginners. Right? John sums it up so well in, in his first chapter of his first letter. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, and this is gospel, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I like to think of repentance with faith. It's one of the two feet that carry us forward on the, on, on the way, the Christian way on our walk following Jesus. There's baptism and there's repentance. All right, sorry, repentance and faith. Because in, in verse 15 of Mark, which is just a little bit after our passage, Jesus will say, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. That's, that's it, repent and believe. That's repentance and faith. So if you're interested in following Jesus, you wanna begin your walk with God, then repent and believe. If you've been walking with God for years, maybe you're aware of sin in your life, then repent and believe in God. If you're eager to further the kingdom by leveling injustice, then you start by repenting and believing. So this Advent season, I'd encourage you to consider baptism, especially if you haven't been baptized before. And I'd encourage us, all of us to, to make a practice of repentance. Let not a day go by when you don't take a step with the foot of repentance. And as you repent, and as you humble yourself, as you prepare for the coming of the Lord this Advent season, you will hear the voice of God, or I, I pray you will hear the voice of God crying out, comfort, comfort, oh my people.